Welcome back to another very special episode of Appleosophy Weekly. I'm your host, Bram Shank, and we're here to unwrap the tech of today with a very special guest, Mr. David Pogue. Hi, David. How you doing? I'm feeling very special. Thank you. You should feel special. You're a man of many talents. You're a renowned technologist, Emmy Award-winning correspondent, New York Times, CBS Sunday Morning. It's quite a privilege. I'm honored to be here. We're talking about a very important issue in today's society, an epidemic, if you will. We've heard a lot about pandemics. There's a digital epidemic going on in the world right now, and it has to do with digital wellness. That's our topic for today. And what I want to do before we dive right into it, I'm going to do a series of six questions for you. They're yes or no questions. Try to answer them as quick as you can. And this is your digital health diagnosis. I'm going to give you a percentage figure at the end of this. Oh, boy. And lower is better so let's go ahead and take a look so the first question remember answer these as quick as you can within the last 24 hours did you spend more time than you intended to on your devices no okay do you find it difficult not to check your phone when you know you shouldn't for example at dinner during a movie etc no no okay do you feel that you miss out on real-life social interactions because you spend too much time using your digital technologies? No. You're a healthy guy all around, huh? Do you feel anxious if you are not up to date with everything that your friends post on social media, things like news updates? No. No, okay. Do you find it hard to disconnect from checking your devices outside of office hours? Yes. Yes. Do you experience symptoms of FOMO when you've got a certain period of time without checking notifications on your devices? So this is like when you're exiting do not disturb in the morning, things like that. Yes, I'm, I'm very yes. eager to check and see what's gone by. So again, lower is better and you scored a 33%. So you're, I'd say you're quite healthy. You're quite confident in your digital wellness. You're quite well, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> now. You had this TED Talk I want to zero in on, and it is called the top 10 Top Time-Saving Tech Tips with David Pogue. And you focused on minimizing the amount of time that we all spend on our devices. Some things as simple as a keyboard shortcut, other things as extensive as, extensive as skipping your friend's uh, voice message on their voicemail that you've heard a thousand times over. All these superfluous things that we deal with day to day with technology and, and you focused on limiting the amount of time we spend. When I started to dive in on this very deeply, I realized it's not how much time we're spending on these devices, but where we're spending our time on these devices. And that's what alters our, our digital wellness, so to speak. Are there any issues that, that stand out to you particularly? I'd like to ask you personally. One of the things for me, chiefly, is we're losing out on the serendipitous nature of communication. A lot of it is on demand. What do you think about that? Is there anything that stands out to you? First of all, I'm two paragraphs behind here, Brom. I'm still trying to figure <laughs> out why I came across as, as digitally healthy. Like, it is true that I don't relate to what I hear about kids. I, I really just I don't have that impulse at all. And I think it's maybe because of my age. I'm 58. I, I came along late. The, the smartphone came along late. The internet came along late. So maybe. And the other thing is, it might just be a matter of being 
busy. This, the next paragraph you mentioned about that TED talk, they were all shortcuts now that you mention it, and they were all about saving time. And when I think about social media, for a lot of people, it's a time killer. That's just something I don't have to worry about, is killing time, constantly racing to make one deadline or another. I, would, I may have scored well on that test, but I would, I would score poorly on one that says, can you let your work go for a week without caring about it or thinking about it? I am a hard worker or workaholic. So I Definitely. think the reason social media and games don't preoccupy me is I don't have time for them. And that's what I have in common with doing a talk on, on time-saving tips. Now, what was the question? I know it's really, you can really find yourself going in circles at times with this topic because it's a really intricate topic to speak about. Now, I think what you're learning to is the, the blurred lines to, to, in today's world between your work-life balance. What does that look like? A lot of people have work-issued technology. Lots of companies issue Apple Watches and iPhones and things like that. And so what we're really seeing is there are pre there's a pressure to be on call all the time, even outside of, of, of office hours. And, and that's a, a mental health issue that's, that's sweeping the, the United States, at least, where a work-wife balance isn't stressed enough. The importance of that isn't stressed enough in this country. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, and I feel like the pandemic took that whole issue and put it into a blender and put it on puree because working from home, on one hand, you don't have to commute anymore. On the other hand, you're always at work. You're never at work, you're always at work. It's The whole issue became a lot more complicated for sure. Not for me because I've always worked at home when I wasn't on the road. For the, as far as the pandemic goes, it came a little bit, it's natural for you, dealing with this work-life balance for most of your career. Yeah, exactly. I write at home and shoot a lot of stuff at home anyway. So the pandemic wasn't like I was losing out on going into an office every day or going into a workplace every day. But for my wife, for example, who does go into an office, it was really traumatizing. The, she literally spent seven, eight hours a day on Zoom. And that was her office. And as many people have observed, there's something about Zoom that is not the same as having in-person meetings. For one thing, you're looking at yourself all day, which is something you don't have to do in an office. They've the since added the ability the to turn that off because it's so easy to just look at yourself in the mirror and how do I look? Do I look right? Just a few things. It's, it's, you don't, it doesn't feel as natural as being there in person. Yeah. That's right. So yeah, so it was really exhausting for her and she's, she just had her first day back yesterday and it was really exultant for everybody. I think it's an excellent point that you make when it comes to work-life balance. It's really going to the office puts you in a mental space. It's time to work. It's time to hit the grindstone and get going. And when you're blurring those lines between work and life, being at home, seeing in Zoom means, it can feel a bit monotonous. Your brain works two times harder to observe body language on Zoom. That's a fact I heard the other day. Now, I want to talk about, as I alluded to earlier, the serendipitous nature of communication and why I feel like that's being destroyed by the modern tech ecosystem, atmosphere, so on and so forth. Not destroyed, but diminished a little bit. I'm going to rephrase that. A little bit diminished. And the reason why I say that is I see a trend. 
you mentioned the fact that your generation didn't have to grow up with this stuff while I did. I grew up with an iPhone in my pocket for since I was a preteen. So it's a very different world that we live in. We grew up with social media and that those things were important to us, checking in and seeing what our friends are doing and talking about ideas online because it was easier than meeting up in person. And I feel like communication in our digital world is it's just like TV and music, it's on demand. It's, hey, let's schedule a Zoom call, or hey, can you drop into the group chat so we can discuss this? It's all on demand. We're, we communicate with people when and where we want now. It's scheduled. Hey, I met somebody today and we had a nice conversation. You don't hear that as often. And it's an ordeal to go out and have coffee with somebody because you can just sit in the comfort of your own home and do it through Zoom. Zoom has its quirks, but for a lot of people, the convenience of meeting virtually is just unprecedented. Yeah. What you're referring to is just a, a larger generational shift from meet space to online transactions. And it's a big change. And any kind of change is scary because it's moving from something that is known to something that is unknown. And I'm not totally sold on the notion that it's bad. I, I can see that it's different. But I just don't know that it's bad. My grandfather lived to be 107. He died just shy of his 107th birthday. So he saw everything invented in his lifetime. The first radio, the first car, the first television, the first Kleenex, the first professional sports, everything came about during his lifetime. So he's seen this cycle many times. And when he was growing up, his parents used to yell at him, stop listening to that infernal radio, it'll <laughs> rot your brain. When I was growing up in the 70s, it was stop watching the TV, it'll rot yes. your brain. And now we tell our kids, get your face out of that screen, you'll rot your brain. It's the same instinct over and over again, a new technology, that we don't understand is scary to us. We think we should minimize our children's exposure to it. Yes, I was very different from my grandfather's way of doing things. My children are very different from my way of doing things. But does it mean that it's worse? I, yeah, that, things are lost, yeah, things are lost, but things are gained. The weather's beautiful here in Connecticut. We're talking <laughs> 70 gorgeous. My youngest son picked up his phone, he went into messages, and he texted some kids from his summer camp a couple years ago and said, let's take the train into New York City and meet up in Central Park. Of course, obviously the punchline of that story is that yes, they actually hung out in physical space. <laughs> kids do that. But it was the flexibility and the freedom and the spontaneity of texting that allowed that to happen. See, and I love that you zeroed in on that, the spontaneity of it all, because oftentimes if, if we look at this in one direction so myopically, it can seem like we're losing out on that. But I love that you outlined this example of your grandfather and 107 years, that whole arc of life. Things that change and things that are new to us are, always make us feel uneasy. And I love how you outlined that from the radio to the television. And, and now it's our smartphones. It's really this rhythm that we go through with paradigm shifts. Like you said, when something big comes along, and as Steve Jobs said, it only does every once in a while. Once in a lifetime, <laughs> something big comes along, and it really changes changes the industry.
And I've actually done a lot of reading and thinking about this very topic on technology fears. And I started, when I was growing up, I remember it was the microwave oven. Remember, <laughs> it's supposed to give you cancer. Doesn't the, give you cancer. There, well, let's go into it because it's really interesting. The electromagnetic spectrum is a wide variance of frequencies of electromagnetic waves going through space, right? There's light, let's call that the middle. To the left of it, radio waves, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, cellular, all different frequencies, all harmless to the human body. On the other side of visible, gamma rays, x-rays, those frequencies are all bad for the human body. They give you cancer, they mess with your DNA, they cause mutations. But because people don't understand that there's a, a, a divider line and everything to the left of it are slow enough frequencies that they don't hurt us, everything to the right can hurt us. I, it's really important to distinguish, and this is why, ladies and gentlemen, cell phones do not give you cancer. Anyway, <laughs> so I bring that up because microwaves are on, they're either on the, I can't remember where they are on the spectrum, but they're either harmless or they're shielded so you don't get them. Anyway, we did not have an outburst of cancer from microwaves. So then I started thinking, what about farther back than that? And it turns out airplanes. When the commercial air travel began in the 20s and 30s, there were letters to the editor of medical magazines from cardiologists saying, don't get on one of those things. The blood will pool in the back of your heart and kill you. Oh God. And I thought, wow, that's so quaint. That, but they're no different from us. With the smartphones, let's go back even farther. 1850s, 1860s, passenger trains began carrying human beings at the unheard of speeds of 50 miles an hour. And it, it was considered terrifying. You were supposed to get locomotive lunacy. It would make you mad to go. It's, no human being had ever gone 50 miles an hour in any conveyance. And, and there was this one great article in a German journal about how women in particular should not get on one of those trains because your uterus would fall out. <laughs> I, th I started thinking, well, how far back does this go? Does this fear of new inventions go? If you can believe it, there were people opining at the, event, at the invention of print, of the written word, that it oh was bad for us. I wasn't Thousands aware of this. Thousands of years ago. So every time there's something new, our gut is to be afraid of it. Not always a bad, there are certainly guidelines that should be set up and things that should be studied. We need to make sure it's safe, but we shouldn't immediately assume that every new thing is bad. I'm actually, I'm aware of the, the hesitancy regarding what they would call the printed word. Is it bigger than that? In what context? I have to look it up, but I did read an article just a few months ago about the early, the Greek philosophers said that it would corrupt the brain somehow. I'll get back to you on exactly what it was. <laughs> One could argue that how it's packed into all our vaccines and everything, so to speak. <laughs> Very much so. That's a twofer. You have two terrifying unknowns at once. People don't know what 5G is. By the way, it's just more of those harmless radio waves. And the new vaccine, which came about as far as the public is concerned, incredibly quickly, vaccines usually take five or 10 or 15 years to develop and test. There are some pretty solid reasons why the COVID vaccine was able to be developed so fast. And partly it's because people had been doing the groundwork on mRNA vaccines since the 90s.
for so uh, long. Yes, ready to go. Yeah. So again, totally unfounded to worry about it, and yet totally human, totally natural. I want to speak on the idea of context collapse, and and we spoke on that at during the little perspective podcast that we did about a month ago. But basically, it's this idea where, for example, you'll go on social media and grandma's apple pie recipe is right next to propaganda. And you lose this sense of context and you can attribute anything to everything, <laughs> so to speak. And it's funny because I see that a lot in today's world, chiefly with the dating scene. Things like this, they have silly things like the three-day rule. Oh, the, where the guy has to wait three days to text the girl. Oh. And it's, it's these silly things that we do. And we base a lot of our interactions establishing our own narrative because there's a loss of context there. If you think about texting somebody, if they don't respond to a text, there's a lot of ways to run with your own narrative. Wait, did they read it? Did they respond with emojis or a GIF or what did they? You start to read into things because you don't have that personal one-on-one, face-to-face, in-person reaction. You can't. You, you, there's a loss of context there, and that's there's a name for that. They call it uh, context collapse, and you start establishing your own narrative based on red receipts and status updates and check-ins and all these different things. What what are your thoughts on that and how that affects not only the the modern dating scene, <laughs> but our our lives and. This is something I do worry about, especially when it comes to an informed populace, misinformation and so on. It is true that what we're exposed to on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram are defined by algorithms now, and what we tap on, we will see more of. We'll be shown Mm -hmm. more of it, which skews the public dialogue about everything, and that's where some of these conspiracy things come along of course and that's where some of the electoral stuff went off the rails and of course it is something that is very well known I'm not this isn't the world's greatest observation that I'm making here and that's a really good thing right now Congress itself is looking into whether there should be regulation whether some of these companies that are dominating our news consumption should be broken up or otherwise regulated on mm-hmm. Facebook and YouTube, it'll say, by the way, either either the algorithm now limits the spread of phony reports, or you'll get a warning on every single one of those with a link to the CDC truthful information. So at least we're aware of it, and that's- Yes, that's and that's the first step. miles beginning with the first step, yeah. Awareness, acceptance, what are the rest of them? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or, or the five stages of grief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that you spoke on your son and the, the spontaneous nature of him being able to link up and hang out with his friends. And that was facilitated by technology. And so it's not always bad, but it's important to assess some of these issues associated with overuse of technology. I want to give you a statistic here. It says one in three Americans have taken steps to improve their digital well-being in the past year, and more than 80% of them said that this had a positive impact on their overall sense of well-being. That's a Google uh, Consumer Survey from 2019. And That's fantastic. I think it, a third yeah, of Americans? That's a giant a third. Number. And I think it's that's a fantastic statistic because it really lines up with what you said 
we, we need to assess our lifestyles, not so much as it relates to technology and how we how it used as part of our lives. Is it just a tool? Is it what is it a tool for? Is it create creativity, content consumption? What kind of content are we consuming on the daily? What does that look like? I think we have to look at how tech holds a place in our day-to-day lifestyle. That is a, a tremendously hopeful stat. I know that 2019, 2020, for both Apple and Google, were the year of the digital wellness initiatives. So mm-hmm. Apple added things like screen time to iOS. Google and you were there for that keynote, features. correct? Yes, that's right, that's right. And I was there at Google's keynote as 10, 12 years ago. We did have a rule, no electronics at the table, but we weren't the greatest enforcers and it wasn't <laughs> super harsh and it wasn't really super needed. Nowadays, when the phone is pulled out at a meal, it's in the service of something social. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe what this YouTuber did. Let me show you this. And they, they prop it against my drinking glass so that we can all... Yeah, so I, think I do that with really my father too. Really? I have a routine uh, where I go out and I grab coffee with my mom and, and we do that. I prop it up against the, the, the little mocha cup and show him something. It, it, it's great when you can bond over content, viewing content together, and, and it has its place in the conversation. It's not dominating. You know, a lot of times what I like to do, just so I'm not distracted, because it's easy to get bombarded with notifications and want to pick it up. You know, when I'm gonna sit down with a, a, a dinner or anything, any kind of thing with my family, with my parents, it really boils down to do not disturb. I love do not disturb. Mm. And I'll put it on for an hour. I'll click the little button that says turn on do not disturb for one hour. And I'll put my phone face down. That way if I need it to show them something, I can pick it up, it's right there. But there's not all these notifications flying in, vying for my attention. Same thing when I go to watch a movie. And back in iOS 12, they introduced that feature. If, if it'll, it can, it knows whether there's a movie ticket on your phone. When there is, it'll time block for the duration of the movie. It'll prompt you. It says, okay, you're about to go into this movie at 8 p.m. It lasts two hours and 31 minutes. Would you like to turn on Do Not Disturb for that length of time? And and that, to me, is one of the one of the best features I've ever introduced because I'm not wondering what's vibrating in my pocket the whole entire movie. Yeah, and iOS 15, as I'm sure you will take that even further with the focus time initiative. And I'm glad you brought that up. Now, iOS 15 introduces, as you said, something called focus mode. And so now you can set up do not disturb modes that are specifically tailored to uh, different segments of your day, whether it be fitness or family time or leisure or work. And this is really a, a deeper implementation of do not disturb and which was introduced back with iOS 6 and Apple's just been building upon it. And this is cool because you can really make informed decisions about not only what notifications you want to see at what time of day, but what apps you see on your home screen, which widgets are you utilizing? Maybe you don't want all these content consumption widgets on your home screen vying for your attention when you're trying to hit the grindstone and work. So these are very important additions to the iOS ecosystem. Do you have the beta on your phone? Are you messing with any of these things yet? Not yet. I will will soon have to. You have to check it out. Now, I know friend of the show, Will, has been using focus mode a lot, and and he has a, a mode set up for family and leisure time. 
where apps like the camera are front and center, the photos widget is front and center, and it makes it easy to gain access to these things when you really need them. Do you think that this is the right decision though? Do you think we're on the right path? Because you do have things like we spoke about earlier where you do have work issue tech and there's a pressure to be on call. There's a pressure to respond when your boss texts you. What if you miss out on that promotion or you're worried that you're gonna miss out on that promotion because your boss texted you and you didn't receive it or you didn't respond right away because you were in family mode and you forgot to exit or something like that. Do you think people will be taking advantage of these features as much as Apple hope? I, I feel like those disaster scenarios are probably edge cases that there will probably <laughs> be more good than harm that comes out of this. Mm -hmm. um, I, Thank I think you, back Wilbur. to the other, the other Apple initiatives, do not disturb when it was invented was a huge help to most people. And then do not disturb while driving. I have no doubt that there are people alive today because, because of that feature. That feature kicked in, yeah. Even if they don't know it, even because it's the default and it kicks in. So it'll never be universal. It'll never be 100% of mm -hmm. phone carriers who use these things. But those who do can get a lot out of them, I think. Um, and focus time is really intriguing to me. The, the reason I don't think it'll have huge buy-in is that it is more settings to change it's more interface to learn the the ios is getting more and more complex let's face it at one point i counted how many different settings there are in the settings app and it was something like 1300 different sliders and switches in that. oh my, oh my I mean, god it's getting ridiculous but it's it's astounding when you compare it to what we saw with the first iphone it's as extensive as the settings got back in the day. It was like airplane mode and Bluetooth. You want them on or off. But yeah, I, I do agree right. with you. It's something that in order for it to be beneficial, you have to go in and configure it. And a yeah, lot of things, a lot right. of what people like about the iOS ecosystem and the iPhone in general is a lot of stuff's configured for you right out of the box. You don't really have to mess with too much, turn too many knobs. Yeah, that's right. Some of the things that you and I are talking about in terms of overreach by the big tech companies and the OS companies working to add digital wellness things to their software. At some level, they're just reacting to public backlash. Mm -hmm. They don't want Congress to regulate them, so they're scurrying to regulate themselves. We'll fix it mm -hmm. ourselves, we'll fix it ourselves. Please don't pass laws. And on one hand, that's pathetic that it takes a public <laughs> outcry to get them to make a move. But on the other hand, as long as they're doing it, as long as the threat of the stick is getting them to take action, at least they're taking Would you be willing to speak on the ongoing antitrust suits? Do you have a particular stance? Sure. I'm particularly fresh on the Amazon stuff. For a long time, I was neutral on Amazon. Yeah, okay, they, there are some injuries in the warehouse and they're putting mm -hmm. little mom and pop shops out of business in the occasional town, but look at the employment they're pr providing and look at the price dropping that we're getting as consumers and all that stuff. I have now changed my mind. I, I listened to Brad Stone's book on an audio called Amazon Unbound and I'm reading this really great book called Fulfillment 
one of those brilliant titles in all of bookdom because Amazon's warehouses are called fulfillment centers and it's also about the instant gratification form of fulfillment. Very and clever, both yeah. of them in different ways are condemnations of how Amazon works. Mm -hmm. All these little Chinese companies do is make the adapters and the Bluetooth speakers, whatever, and then Amazon sells them. So for a long time, Amazon would highlight the best of those in something called Amazon's Choice, the ones that had good ratings and few returns and a good price. And those people got a boost because they were editor's choice and people would just click, oh, that's the Bluetooth speaker I want. Then, a couple of years ago, Amazon started saying, well, hey, let's sell our own store brand, Amazon Basics cables and cameras and yes. external batteries. And then they took it a step further. They began designating their own store brands as the editor's choice. That is not okay. That is what's called a conflict of interest to the companies they're representing. And it's not fair to readers who expect that the Amazon's choice should be, is, or the editor's choice picks are neutral and based on merit. So th that I read just today is one of the very things that Congress is looking at right now. And I, I don't see any way that Amazon is going to be able to. There's, there's no if, ands, or buts. There's no way to turn the coin on that. It seems like a, a, a terrible practice. <laughs> Amazon is saying, oh, oh no, we're completely impartial. Like we only designate <laughs> one of our own products as the it's best. It's a supposed it algorithm. Really is the best. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's like, what I want to talk about. Is, is a lot of this is driven by algorithms that you're not sure if you can trust them or not. There's, you're not sure the authenticity in instances like this. How A lot of people would counter you and say, how is this different from you know, Sam's Club's Members Mark or Costco's Kirkland, which they price lower to compete with the name brands? It, what would you say to those? Yeah, and, and CVS has their own store brands and Rite Aid has their store. There's nothing wrong with store brands. There's nothing wrong with that. That's long been accepted, you can save money. The difference is this uh, ostensible editorial judgment that Amazon is placing in the box at the top of the page when you do a search for USB microphone or iPhone case or whatever. Obviously there are thousands and thousands of choices. So it's a big problem consumers have. How do I choose? So Amazon's trying to make it better by saying here's our editor's pick. This is the one we think you'll like best. And they're naming their own store brand as that's the difference. Uh, Kirkland doesn't do that. They don't say, we've we tried them all and Kirkland is the best. Yes, and, and I think that's the important distinction because that, that's a lot of, that's a counter argument that I hear all too often. And, and I'm, I'm thrilled that you're outlining the difference because lots of people say, oh, how is it any different? How is it any different than name brand? And it, it's much more than that. It's about when you're doing this through a screen, there are unfair advantages that are posed by these companies. The fact that it is at the top of the page, that it is more often than not mysteriously the number one recommended thing. <laughs> and now there are other issues too that Congress is looking into and there should be. I was reading an editorial today that is really persuasive. It says that the antitrust laws put into effect decades ago 
were to rein in companies from getting so big that they raise prices. It was mm -hmm. all price focused. And that's why Amazon has been allowed to calcify the way that it has to, be, to become cancerous because they make prices lower. They do, they make our prices lower. So Amazon has dodged any governmental interference by saying, we're not raising prices, we're clearly not a monopoly, we're clearly not violating any antitrust regulations. So the question, is it now time to say, maybe antitrust regulations should look at more than simply the price levels? Some of the problems with Amazon, their injuries, serious injuries in the warehouses are double Walmart's injuries per 100 man hours. Amazon bought the company that used to make its warehouse robots, Kiva, which had mm -hmm. a bunch of other clients, a bunch of other big, big box stores used to use Kiva robots, and Amazon bought the company and then cut the other companies off from service and upgrades. So they're just screwed. They have all these worthless warehouse robots now. These are just nefarious practices. Yeah, totally legal. <laughs> and let's not even get into the zero tax that Amazon pays. Totally legal. Amazon says, hey, wait a minute. Yes, okay, we made $500 billion in, in profit and paid almost no taxes, but we don't make the tax law. And you know what? They're right. Congress makes the tax laws. They favor big corporations. Amazon's just following the law. There's nothing wrong that Amazon has done there. There's something wrong with the tax law, but that's another example. So there are a lot of examples where the laws and the structures are antiquated and Amazon has done nothing more harmful than live up to them the way they were designed. And they're just so big that now it matters. And I couldn't have said it better, David. That's You described it there in a nutshell. A lot of people are anxious, so, to say the least, about the ongoing antitrust lawsuits, chiefly against Apple. People are worried that this will stifle innovation. And you mentioned that these very old antitrust laws, these antiquated laws, are, are centered around preventing prices from these monopolistic companies from trending to too high, higher and higher. When you think of Apple and you think of a smartphone that started out around 500 bucks, $200 with a carrier deal, and is now over $1,000 in some cases, it, need I say more? I don't see it as the same thing, mainly because Apple does have meaningful competition, which Amazon does not. Android is well over half the operating systems not in this country i think we tend a little bit more toward iphones but worldwide android has it yeah and in android you can get really cheap phones so there's no smartphone monopoly and there's no smartphone price threshold that you have to be that you have to meet and but at the same time i'm sure apple and their lawyers and their lobbyists are still <laughs> doing what all the other big companies are doing, they're constantly being careful and, and sensing which way the public wind is blowing. For example, the privacy thing. Mm -hmm. It's no surprise that Apple advertises, markets, stresses, gives speeches on how privately they treat your data more and more as the public sentiment 
against privacy invasions rises. So Apple's very smart. They don't want to be regulated about this stuff. So they're going way out ahead of the curve, ahead of the wave, to say, look how careful we already are. It's definitely, you hear a lot more about it in the media these days and directly from Apple about privacy and security and how it should be baked into everything that they make, hardware and software. And I, I've watched an interview with Craig Federighi, who's their current uh, software SVP over at Apple right now, and he talked about uh, privacy has always been a fundamental concern for Apple. And back in the day, when people started to realize, hey, analytics and all this stuff is where the money is at. Let's spy on what everybody's doing. And Apple wasn't doing that back in the day. Everybody looked at this like, Apple, get over this this weird fetish you have with privacy. It's We get it. It's a marketing thing for you guys. This is where the money is. And Apple didn't pivot. They didn't shift. They stuck to their values. And it seems like that's working out for them in the long term. The whole thing reminds me a little bit of, I saw a watermelon in the store with a sticker that said, no artificial ingredients. It's no kidding, dude. Apple <laughs> doesn't sell ads. It's not their business. Mm -hmm. They're not Google, they're not Facebook. Advertising is not their product, as Google and Facebook, and therefore Instagram are. So it's very easy for Apple to say, we don't use your data, we don't collect your data. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, right, because you sell hardware. Yes. So it's really, Apple wants to make it seem like it's an even playing field, that it's apples and oranges, haha, but it's not. It's <laughs> totally different. Yeah. It fell into Apple's lap, the fact that it doesn't have to collect data. If they did have a search website that was, or a social media website that was their main thing, they would be collecting our data. And I have to say, the Washington Post's tech columnist Jeffrey Fowler once made a fantastic point, which is that sometimes Apple's resistance to collecting data hurts us. And he pointed out that if you use Google Maps, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, Brom, but if mm. you're in Google Maps and you start putting in the address where you're going, you type seven and it fi finishes in 7415 East Maple Avenue and over New Hampshire. Like it fills in all that because Google also has access to your calendar. It yeah. knows where you're probably going like this. Apple doesn't do that because Apple's all partitioned off and doesn't share data even among its own properties. So there are times when it makes more work for us. But as this becomes a greater and greater public concern, most people would probably prefer that Apple be careful with our data. Well, and we're seeing more and more of that beginning with iOS 9 and now very deeply in iOS 15 the fact that Apple's integrating a lot of those features that people came to expect from Android on device, it's all through their own silicon. It doesn't need to connect to an external server to ask your calendar, wait, are there any addresses in there? Oh, there are. Okay, show, make them show up in Maps. And all that's done all on device. A lot of features this year uh, don't require being connected to the Internet, being on a Wi-Fi network to activate Siri, Siri and use manipulate control center turn on and off different things and open apps and things like that. So it's really interesting. But again, iOS users are excited for these features. It's so brand new to them. Things like OCR, live text, seeing, being able to grab text from a sign or a whiteboard. And Android's had that for years. And it's web-based. And it's not as fast as you can do it when it's 
based on the silicon. And so Apple has their own privacy centric ways of implementing a lot of these things. I think that's a really great point. You may not have all of the features right away. And, and in so many ways, Apple's obsession with privacy does stifle that their their innovation. You look at Siri. Siri has such a hard time understanding context and following a conversation because it doesn't want to know more about you. It just wants to know what data is on the phone. Yeah, that's right. I am excited about Siri being all on the phone, though. Not only is there a privacy thing that I've never worried about. Who cares about an anonymous request that says, when was Abraham Lincoln reward? <laughs> but the fact that it'll now be faster and usable when the internet is congested. Mm -hmm. Those are both really great features. Apple does have a way in each OS update of adding things that I think are really clever and really useful. That live text thing, being able to find searchable text in your photos, that's really cool, like a picture of a sign, to be able to dial a number on a billboard that you see. It's mm -hmm. ingenious. And in terms of who had it first, I gotta say, having been in this business for 30 <laughs> years, I'm really bored by that protest. I, I always live stream, live tweet the Apple WWDC and other announcements. And I'll say Apple just added feature X and inevitably people go, Android's had that since version P. And <laughs> you know what? They do steal from each other. They all do. Apple, Google, Samsung, deal with it. They've done this for years. Android itself is a Xerox copy of the original iOS. Deal with it. There's nothing against it. You cannot copyright an idea. You can only copyright the implementation of an idea. That's what the law says. So yes, they're all gonna copy each other. And in fact, I was working for Yahoo Finance for a few years mm -hmm. and you can still find this column I'd wanted to do for decades. It was, it's a feature genealogy and it takes every feature like from pinch and zooming photos on to do not disturb to mm -hmm. Siri, every single feature. And I'm talking, there were 400. And I actually traced back each one to which company originated it. Wow. And sometimes it was Google and sometimes it was Apple and sometimes it was Samsung. And then now all three companies have all three. They, they, they all stole all the features from each other and they're all now essentially on par with each other. There's still, Google still doesn't have anything like iMessages. And yes. That's, so there's still certain things that structurally only the hardware software company can have. But in general, everybody copies from everybody. By the way, the final tally gave a slight edge to Apple. So Apple of the three companies has introduced more new features than its rivals. That's an interesting takeaway because a lot of people, when they think about Apple, yes, it's considered an, one of the most innovative companies of our time. But when you look back at things like the smartphone, like multi-touch, they didn't invent these things. They just dreamt up unprecedented implementations for these things. And Steve and several other people that have worked at Apple have spoken deeply on this idea that Apple is not about look at all these look at all this technology that we have. How can we jam it into the phone or the tablet or how can we implement it? They don't focus on implementing technologies. They focus on implementing ideas 
and experiences. And then they say, oh, that piece of tech could work for this and this piece of tech could work for that. And they piece it together and they mold something from the ground up. And I think that's one of the reasons why I choose Apple time and time again. And a lot of people would consider me a fanboy because many of my products are Apple and, and Mac, and I love the Mac, and I know we both share that same uh, sentiment there. But I think, and this is why I gravitate toward your content in particular, is we're all here for the innovation. Everybody copies each other, we get it, but we're all here for the innovation. What will Apple or Samsung or Google do next that will change the industry? They all have an influence on each other. They all have this gravitational pull, and I really love that. One of the segments that you had uh, a, a couple years ago on CBS Sunday Morning, you were comparing the iPhone 10 and the Galaxy Note 8, and you were in comparing both of these phones. You're, you start to realize that they're more the same than they are different. It's just a matter of preference. What ecosystem do you want to be in? Do you value things like privacy, or do you believe, hey, if I'm not doing anything wrong, who cares who's watching me? There's these are questions that that you ask yourself, and it really boils down to consumer preference. And I think these antitrust laws that are being introduced, people are wondering, will this, chiefly for Apple, will this stifle innovation? And I think a company that's as innovative as Apple will come up with the right solutions. And the important thing, as you stated, is these laws are antiquated. They're old. They they need uh, revision. And at that point, I'm sure Apple will will find a way to jump through the hoops. One of the one of the ideas that was posed earlier this week was this idea of shipping naked iPhones. That is to say, there are no apps on them. You sideload your own programs. Some are saying that would require plugging it back into a computer again. What What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's the correct solution? I know, but I. you just explained a big mystery for me. A couple days ago, I got a an invitation from an Apple PR person to join them for an exclusive one-on-one Zoom briefing. And would I agree to the embargo? Oh, wow, cool, that sounds exciting. And I agreed to the embargo, and then he sent over a white paper and said, this is what we'll be discussing. (laughs) And what the white paper was, we at Apple believe in the App Store model and not Mm -hmm. the sideloading model because that this allows us to scan these things for malware and, and bad doings before mm-hmm. the, the public gets a hold of them. That's the news? Apple has <laughs> said that ever since the App Store came about. That's old news. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what prompted this bizarre restatement of a decades-old Apple policy. Who was it who was suggesting sideloading all it, it originated in court, but the first report that I read on it was from iMore. Wow. I missed it completely, and therefore I had no idea why Apple wanted to meet with journalists to restate their case. Thank you for solving that little mystery. I wish I had more details here in the notes, but that was just something that I read in passing. I wanted to know what you thought of it. We're speaking, the conversation has shifted. We, we had a great conversation about digital wellness, and now we're diving deep into antitrust stuff, which is very relevant. I love that we're, we're talking about it. We're interacting a lot with software these days. It's very important that we're assessing what, what kind of place this software and hardware has in our lives. I hear you have some literature to share with us regarding that. I do. I'm, I'm here in, in 
as a little dessert to to plug the two new books <laughs> that I've just Mac Unlocked and iPhone Unlocked. The iPhone book is in full color. The e-books of both of them are in full color. And it's a, it's a strange story that, that brings up another topic we should talk about sometime, which is how do people learn their gadgets? And it turns out less and less from books. I've been writing these, these Mac and iPhone books for many years. I started the Missing Manual series in 2009. And last year, O'Reilly, the publisher of the Missing Manual, said we're going to dis discontinue them. We can't. I had the first version of that. Do you really? The Missing Manual. Yes, wow. it's around here somewhere. <laughs> it's probably worth a fortune on eBay now. But people don't. They very few people buy computer books anymore. It's sad for me. It's sad for people who like learning from books. But so that is for me the end of Missing Manuals, unfortunately. So. This year, instead, I talked to my new publisher, Simon & Schuster, about doing new books for them because they, they hadn't quite given up on the, on the concept. And so they funded the creation and publication of two brand new books, same old Pogue, same humor, covering Big Sur and iOS 14, respectively, the new iPhone 12s, but totally different words from the missing manuals. I literally had to rewrite everything. I will say this, they are great books, I'm very proud of them, but nobody's buying these either. So I literally think that the writing for computer book lovers is, is on the wall. That you think it's a, a declining market? I, it still has a place in my heart. I still like reading for books. In fact, we had uh, Christian Selig, he was on the show last week. He's, if you're not familiar, the developer behind the hit, the smash hit Reddit app, Apollo. It's an mm. award-winning Reddit client uh, on iOS and iPad, and now macOS with the release of Big Sur, now iPad apps can run on the Mac. I'm sure you talk about that in your book. It, oh, yeah. And he was talking about the way that he learned to code in Objective-C and all this stuff was through books. And it's very different from the sort of hands-on approach that we see now with things like Swift Playgrounds, how you can learn the Swift programming language. You can do it from an iPad now. and so. There's really a, a paradigm shift in what people have come to expect as far as obtaining knowledge. But I do want to stress the importance of the printed word <laughs> in today's market. And I, I highly recommend both of those books, Mac Unlocked and iPhone Unlocked. Go ahead and check them out. Are they on, they're on Amazon and in stores? They're still on Amazon. <laughs> it hasn't been they, broken up into individual pieces. By the time you hear this. <laughs> yeah, right. Good. Give us a quick rundown of where the people can find you on social media and where they can find the new books, iPhone and Mac Unlocked. Sure thing. On Twitter, I'm Pogue, just my last name, P-O-G-U-E. And my website is davidpogue.com. And um, oh, actually, anyone who wants to follow everything that I do, including getting notifications of my Sunday morning stories, there's a really cool service called Authory, like author with a Y on Ooh. it. It's free to everybody where you just give your email address and then you get a notification whenever I publish an article online or a, a story that's online. So authory.com slash authory.com. Me too. Thank you so much. You're as always, you're so prepared and so thoughtful. We had a blast. Thanks for coming on. Take care. We'll see you guys next week.